Hello and thank you for joining our fifth edition of Priory's podcast, Sporting Highs and Lows. I'm Luke Sutton and once again joined by Simon Wilson, the Therapy Services Manager at Priory Hospital North London. Today I am very happy to be joined by an old friend of mine uh, and one of England's great opening batsmen. Marcus Truscovic played first class cricket for Somerset for 26 years, which I can't quite get my head around, which is phenomenal and represented England in 76 Test matches and 123 One Day Internationals. His England career was cut short by an ongoing battle with depression and anxiety, uh, and he's been incredibly open and honest about his mental health challenges over the years, and in many ways has been uh, a trailblazer, particularly for cricket and in some ways professional sport, in opening up the conversation around mental health. So, welcome to both. Thank you. Marcus, um, uh, I want us to, to kind of start off by um, revisiting when, when things got to their worst for you during your England career, because you at that point, you know, I knew you very well as a person, as a player, but I had no idea about the challenges you were facing. And, and for everyone looking in, you were this phenomenally talented England player at their absolute best. Um, but just take us back to to when it really hit home for you that you know things were not right for you. Well, you know, I think um, I'd suffered with it for for a number of years, but de- never really gave it the title that what it is nowadays in terms of you know labelling it uh, an anxiety or um, depression um, sort of tablet, if you like, or tab. Um, but I, we were in India at the time, um, preparing for a test match and things were just not right. You know, things were just very, uh, uncomfortable. I'd been sort of in, in my room for a, about a week, sort of isolating away cause I was ill and, and just felt rough. So we try and obviously keep the lads away, not hoping, hoping sure that nobody else gets anything, but, um, it just, it never got better. Uh, and in fact, it got worse, you know, as we progressed throughout the tour and we moved on to a different place, the hotel wasn't quite as good and uh, the, the place around it was a lot worse. Um, poverty was everywhere. Um, and it just progressed quite quickly to, you know, to once the I started getting that sleep deprivation when I was just so anxious that I couldn't sleep, then things progressed quite quickly to the point of where obviously then coming off the pitch, uh, and leaving the game, I was in a in a right state because I was totally out of control of my body and my thoughts and everything was going on and just a, a totally uncomfortable place where I wasn't happy and couldn't and couldn't deal with anything that was that was going on. So um, tricky, as you can imagine, at that point that that was really the fear was probably more of the unknown. It was like, what the hell is going on here? I have no idea what's happening. Um, but I knew more than anything else, I just needed to get away. I needed to get out of that environment and that sort of. Uh, the situation I was in to try and just sort of get my head around it and, and work out what was happening. Back then, you know, we, we it's important to remember um, that the discussion around mental health challenges, it, you know, it, it wasn't open an open discussion, was it? It was it was um, it's nothing like it is today. Um, and I and I think you know one of the challenges with with mental health is that when when you find yourself in difficulty, there's a kind of shame of like you know, what's there shouldn't be anything wrong with me. What is wrong with me? And is that something that you felt at the time? Well, you know, in that fact that you were there on an England tour at the peak of your career, did you feel that this is something that you needed to sort out yourself, if, if that makes sense? 
Yeah, well, I think you're, you're right in saying that it, it's come so far, you know, since, you know, my sort of time in sort of 2006. So we're talking a number of years now. Uh, and it, the way that people are dealing with it in this society, these modern society is a lot better, isn't it? There's a lot more openness. Everyone's accepting more of what is going on. I think around my sort of time and probably before my sort, you know, before I sort of um, really came to light, you were seen to be as being mad or, you know, seeing as though there was a, you, you know, you're losing the plot, you know, at, at that point because of the understanding wasn't there for people. They They didn't really know. They didn't, they couldn't understand it because it not really been talked about or highlighted so um it, it had to take a journey and it has done and it has progressed dramatically and it is improving all the time um because more and more people are saying yeah i, I suffer and i deal with this and i deal with that um and everybody's stories stories are very similar so everyone's accepting of their own journey so um, it's a. It's just the the awareness of it and the better understanding nowadays is making it easier for people to say yes, I suffer and I need some help. Simon, I, I just to bring you on, in on this. I, I remember in our last episode we were talking about kind of high performing um, individuals who and uh, who are able to cope with extraordinary levels of stress um, in whatever they do, whether it be cricket, gymnastics, you know, stock market, whatever it might be. And then they suddenly reach a place where they can't cope with leaving their room um, and, and that kind of sleep deprivation, which, which um, uh, Marcus is talking about that, that he was having in India and then it becoming this cycle. It, 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 that, that's common, is it, amongst people who are, are battling with depression, anxiety or that kind of mix of, of illnesses? I think absolutely. So my my experience is with people who are incredibly strong. And as we talked about historically, mental health was seen as something to be ashamed of or a sign of weakness. Someone who um, doesn't have emotional resilience will not put themselves in challenging situations. They will not make it as a top flight athlete. It's that strength that enables someone to reach the very pinnacle of their career that will also trip them up later on in life where they just can't do it anymore. The body has a, a finite amount of adrenaline and resistance and resilience to this kind of pressure. And everyone will have a tipping point where they reach that point of not being able to push themselves any further. And then that's compounded by the idea of being a man, being a tough player, being someone who's exceptional at what they do. You're not allowed to demonstrate and show that weakness. So for someone then with that mindset, they're telling themselves, actually, I don't know what this is and I'm not allowed to have whatever this is. It's a real challenging uh, mix of, of experiences. Yeah, I mean, I think the thing that I find fascinating is the two kind of most high profile England players in recent, ti- in recent times who've, who've had difficulties with mental health, Marcus being one and Jonathan Trott being another one. And in different ways, I, I as you know, knowing cricket, you, you know, Marcus, you're incredibly brave, attacking, positive. I've never met anyone more dedicated to the, to the team than you, you were and are. And in Trotty, you know, someone who you would look at as incredibly resilient, you know, incredibly tough. And, um, and yet both found difficulties with this sort of thing and um do, do you think that's part of the challenge marcus that you're you when you are that type of person and, and a leader of sorts that um you're kind of burning you're, you're pressing the revs on the the engine so many times to demand this of being that person in the team that suddenly you press the revs and you know you can't take any more I, I don't think it's a case of um it's too much too much is put upon yourself 
I think it's more of a case of this is what you believe is the way that you go about things. You know, I, I, I did it in a certain way and I wanted to continue to do it in that way in terms of the energy that you put into your practice, your training, your team, the game and everything you wanted to do. But I think those, that sort of frailty within me was always there. I think those thoughts have always been in my mind. It's just that you've, I've, I've, I've kind of sort of dealt with them and um, managed them to a certain point until the pot overflowed. And it was like, I can't manage them anymore. I can't, they're now at a point now where I'm out of control of what's going on and, and I'm not, uh, and I'm not dealing with it, but it's, you know, it's talked. It's talked about. You know, anxiety and depression is talked about. Like the curse of the strong, isn't it? The people who who can continue to take on things and keep doing things in the way that they do don't want to try and upset the you know the apple cart and just keep uh, a steady sort of platform. And um, a lot of times, that's when it just you take on too much. And like I said, to you the pot just overflows, and it's like you can't deal with everything that's going on at the right time. Hmm. Well, look, I, I, I remember us going uh, on tour to, to Holland, I think when we were 11 or 12, mate. 14. You were there, 13. Well, yeah, I remember sharing a room with you on the, in the, on the ferry on the way back. I think the toilet broke, which is not a great... <laughs> Do you remember? We had a massive bag of sweets in between us. And, but the funny thing is, is that I remember at that age, and Marcus is a year older than me, um, but I remember at that age that even then you you were nervous about leaving home. Do you remember you were nervous about yeah. going on tour? And, and and do you think that was kind of early signs of you talking about yeah. that you had that in your makeup? Yeah, very much so. You know, from from a younger age, you know, from my first sort of trip away from home at sort of 10, 11, um, that I find it tricky to a certain point. You know, certain parts of the trip I'd always really enjoy. Um and then in the morning was always really bad, really bad. And and then gradually as the day goes on, you get better. Um, you know that that to me is still the classic signs of how I feel when I'm when I'm rough. You know, and the anxiety kicks in. You know, I sleep is is uh, disturbed. Um, wake up in the morning very anxious. And then gradually throughout the day, you you get better to a point where sort of five, six, seven o'clock sometimes you're actually feeling relatively normal. Um, so those those warning signs were there. It was just at the time it was always tagged for me. It was just a bit of homesickness. That, that that's what I put it down to, um, and that's how I dealt with it all the way through, uh, even when I was playing with England. So from the age of sort of ten, eleven, every time I would go away from home up to when I was still playing with England. So in two thousand and two thousand and four, even then, I had a really rough trip starting the trip off in in South, in South Africa. Um, really rough sleeping, couldn't get, you know, very anxious in the morning. So, you know, all that time it was still sort of progressing, but all that time I'd still tagged it as homesickness. Um, and it wasn't until India where it progressed where I thought, actually, this is something more than I w- thought it was. So, Simon, I, I, I guess I, the reason I, I wanted to bring up that point is that, that this, and there might not be a straight answer, so please feel free to say, but the, 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 what I find interesting is, you know, someone who, who, has mental health challenges is it predisposed in them or is it what they're doing and their approach to it and their conditioning of, of what their job is or what they're trying to achieve is it one or the other or is it a mix you know is it is it possible to see it in a 12 13 you know even young slightly younger for Marcus is it possible to see that they might be predisposed to these issues 
Yes, so current research suggests that it's a mixture. So you'll have someone who may be predisposed because of life experiences or genetically predisposed. There'll be a family history of anxiety. And then there'll be life events that trigger that, that that bring that predisposition to the fore. And that could be a a slow mixture of things or it could be a particular difficult event that, that brings symptoms on. So generally it's a mix. Okay. And Marcus, with, with the modern game now and, 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 you know, and COVID as it is with these kind of biosecure bubbles that players are in, um, you know, what, what sort of mental health challenges do you think those guys are going through at the moment? Because it's not just the, the busy international high pressure scene. It's now also being trapped in, trapped, maybe not the right phrase, but, you know, stuck in a, in a bubble and being away from their family and home in an even more artificial environment, you know. What do you think those guys are going through? Well, I've done a couple of them and, and they are very unique, you know, in, in different in what you do. I think um, the couple that we did with, within England, so we had a, a, a we were stuck in the, um, the Rose Bowl for a, for a period, of time, period of time, or the GS Bowl it is now, and Old Trafford. Um, and they are, they're different, I think, when you're in your own country because you, you're used to surroundings, you know the, the TV when you put it on, you know, the familiarity is of... Um, things that you do when you're back in your room are there, you know, so it's it, you keep it um, okay. I think uh, when in South Africa, we did four weeks in South Africa, lovely hotel, obviously you can get out and get down by the pool and stuff. But I think it's probably more the downtime that you, that you have that you need to try and uh, fill or occupy your time because there's less opportunities to say, right, let's go for a coffee, let's go out for dinner, let's go and play golf, you know, so those, those times when you would normally be doing that and getting that social interaction, quite often you found you'd be back up in your room and uh, you needed to fill that time. So, you know, whatever it may be, there may be more gym time to take upon them. Obviously, when you're with more of the management, you have a, a few more meetings and stuff that you, you need to undertake. So it's just, it's, it's an understanding that there's going to be different processes and different moments within a trip um, and making sure that the the players can try and mentally keep on top of what actually is going on in their head. And Simon, I guess guess just that I'm sort of put you on the spot again around this predisposition and maybe looking at cricket in particular. You know, cricket has a disproportionate number of um, people or players who've flagged up mental health issues. And, And I think there's probably a lot who haven't flagged it up who are secretly either getting help or not talking about it. But do you think a game like cricket, which is so long, it's very um, uh, analytical, I guess, of the game because it's slow and it's really testing you um, and there's periods of of being away from home. Do you think, you know, that is a a sport which is going to be susceptible to it versus, you know, a shorter sport like a a 90 minutes game of football? I think all uh, professional sport has the potential for someone to be very um, introspective and analytical of themselves. I think particular sports will attract certain kinds of personalities in the same way certain professions might attract certain personalities. You think about a typical accountant or a typical surgeon or a typical person in the entertainment industry. There are some research around different professions to look at incidences of mental health. And there are some research that says certain professions will attract people with certain disorders. For example, in the entertainment profession, research shows that over 60% of women in, in the entertainment field 
uh, will uh, suggest they have some form of personality disorder or some form of mental health issues. And some of that was brought to light with um, discussions about Caroline Flack and different people in the public eye. So I think there, there is a, a link, although there's much more research needs to be done, I think. Yeah, that's really interesting. I think that's a fascinating question that starts because, you know, the volume of um, sort of Q&As or interviews that I would do about mental health, but it's one of the major questions that, that comes up. You know, are cricketers more susceptible to mental health challenges than, than any walk of life? And I'd like to know a definitive answer on that. I'm not sure that we'll ever find one, but I can't understand why it would breed more mental health than anything else when, you know, one in three, one in four people in the general population suffer with mental health problems you know maybe it's just talked about more within our cricket fraternity i don't, I don't know i don't know and i, I I'm, I'm intrigued to to try and understand where you know where this goes but it, it i don't see how it can be is my is my immediate reaction how cricketers can be more susceptible apart from the fact that we play a stupid game that lasts four days five days and we don't get a result you know that that's frustrating in itself isn't it well, I, I do. I mean, I think, and I'm not just because you're on this podcast, but honestly, you you, you changed cricket, the conversation in cricket around mental health, you know, and um, I remember reading your book. I, I think I might have texted you even at the time and I, I was just absolutely blown away by it. In, and well, that was over 10 years ago. Um, and, you know, if if what happened to you hadn't happened and hadn't been so public and you hadn't talked about it the way you had, maybe we wouldn't be where we are within cricket, you know? And, and a lot of people, including myself, have benefited from that conversation having moved forward. And maybe in other sports, that's not happened yet. You know, there's not that been that kind of big watershed moment in football where, where, where it's really opened up the conversation and people have really um, grabbed hold of it. But... Just on that point, when you look back on your time when it, it did become public and it was incredibly difficult for you during that time, do you, you know, what is your memories of it? You know, where you were trying to, because I think you, you you did go on the Ashes tour, didn't you, to Australia at some point yeah, after. And, yeah, what are your yeah. memories of that time of, of, of trying to, you know, gain perspective of what had happened to you? Yeah, so I reckon, um, obviously I was desperate to get back to play international cricket. Obviously I loved um, obviously in my time when I did it um, but it while I was in control and, and in a in an environment which felt safe by being at home and being at Somerset and being within you know where I was comfortable I, I could cope with it and I was dealing with it okay the minute I was then put back into that pressure cooker of um, you know back with England the scrutiny of you know how how was I you know how was I going to cope being away from home again in a in a, another hotel, you get the jet lag when you first go to Australia. Obviously, that takes a bit of time, you know. So the emotional side of it suddenly kicks in, and it just grows and grows and grows and grows. And suddenly, you're like, no, 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 this is all happening all over again. I don't like the feel of this. I, you know, I can't cope with it. So, um, you know, you you make that choice to to leave on. Um, but you know, it, it's an experience and an understanding which has helped me throughout the years start to get a better you know, better realisation about what goes on. Um, there's certain things now that, that really help me when I get to that point where I'm sort of on the edge, you know, where I'm, if I don't start getting control of this, I'm going to go quickly out of control. But I know now that, and one of them's medication, and big help for me, my medication is a real 
um, asset that I've worked out um, and that calms it down and I've and I've almost got trust in that now that now I know within a two or three days of changing the dosages that really helps me sort of get control of what's going on and I can start to rationalize all the thoughts and the the feelings and the emotions that are going through my head they start to calm down and I start thinking normally and going actually this is really good I really like this going back on tour with, with England in the last um I've done a couple of trips with them now I'm back I'm away going this is amazing I love this now Th this is the good part of touring that I used to love doing um and now it's like you can start back and start enjoying it and I, I'm gradually putting that side of my life back together I think that's a really powerful thing you've said around medication because, Simon, correct me if I'm wrong, I, I, I think there is a bit of a taboo at times with people not just accepting where what's happening to them, but then accepting that they might need medication. And that is that another challenge with, with trying to, to help people? So I think there's a, there's a bigger question there about a diagnosis. For some people, they find a diagnosis makes sense and all of these unpleasant feelings or sensations, suddenly they, they now fit um, a list of symptoms. And with that goes some medication. But for others, because they might wonder or have preconceived ideas about a diagnosis, I don't want to be, as Marcus said, labelled as someone who's, who's losing the plot or, or is unwell and ill. So for some people I think a diagnosis and medication can be really really important. For others they might be frightened or, or wary of medication um, but research again shows that medication and talking therapies or a mixture of both can be really helpful in moving forward from these symptoms. I think that's the really important part you know I haven't just jumped into medication and gone this is the only thing that's going to make any difference. Uh, I've used therapy and still do. Um, when I feel rough, I speak to my the counsellor that I've spoken to all the whole time that I've been dealing with these problems. Um, you know, mindfulness, you know, the yogas, the, all the other things, you know, the, the other, other parts that sort of go with it. I've tried all those and not really had great success with, the, with that sort of side. So for me, the medication is something now I rely on and will continue to rely on for the rest of my life because I, I don't want to get to that point where I get those those lulls and those dips when I don't take them because I, I tried that and that that's no good either you know so being constant and being on a, a level that I can maintain and sort of stay with really helps me it stops me going too far down um, and getting really bad you know I have a couple of weeks now where I'm a bit rough and I'm sort of I can still manage what I'm doing but I know after that, you know, with the upping of the sort of medication, that I will be back to normal quite, uh, quite, so quite soon, really. And when you're going through that, those sort of difficult couple of weeks, which you know, it's, it's, over time you, you've managed better and better. Do, do you communicate that with, you know, with Haley or wife or you know, family? You say that I'm, do, do they see it, or do, do you have a kind of? Um, Graham Fallow, you know, obviously talked yeah. a lot about his mental. He puts a score on it, doesn't he? He always says, "I'm a, I'm a, an eight or a nine. Do you have that sort of communication? No, I, I don't openly talk to my wife about it. I just because almost like I don't want to burden her with that feelings until I get to the point where I almost need to just go. Oh, love, I'm really crap again. I'm just feeling really rough, uh, and it's almost a bit of a relief at that point when I do, because then I don't have to sort of hide away from it. Um, but quite often I will go through that little lull on my own, just knowing that I'm going about my business um, and it will come back to normal uh, because that's what I've, I've done many, many times, just sort of gone through my, my daily routine, get back to work, 
get really in, in, engaged in things, get my brain operating away from feeling rubbish, um, and it comes back on track. So, um, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm a massive advocate of talking to people and say, look, just talk to someone. Uh, but I still don't. <laughs> you know, when I feel rubbish, I just try and keep it to myself, try and get on with what I try and do. Um, and the, the person I would probably talk to first is Brian, my counsellor, you know, and I would phone him up because we can have that sort of private conversation. No one knows anything's going on. I'm feeling rough or whatever it may be. And we try and get things back on track. And like I say, I've done that many different times and, and more often than not, I, I don't tell them. But sometimes she picks up on it and there are signs um, with how I'm operating in and around home and um, you know things that I, she generally picks up on my at- appetite because I suddenly suddenly stop eating the same volume of food as what I normally do, um, and she uh, she noticed that quicker more than anything else. Yeah, and uh, Simon, we we touched on it in the last episode with Niall, didn't we? The the challenge for families in dealing with this it's 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 not to be underestimated. It, you know, it's a confusing for the individual, is it as it is for a loved one, and to know what to do. And I guess those guys, you know, family members also need an outlet of where to talk at times. And I think as Michael was saying, Michael was saying there about um, not wanting to burden or worry a family member. Sometimes the family member will then have anxiety about their loved one's anxiety. And that can create a vicious cycle where I'm now having to control my feelings and manage those. I also need to manage you and make sure that you're not worried because that's making me more anxious and trying to avoid those vicious cycles. So having an outlet um, that's outside of that can sometimes be more healthy but as you say being able to of course your, your loved ones are going to notice a change and being able to name it but then also um, know that something's being done about it it doesn't have to be resolved or dealt with in the relationship or in the family there is external support that can be utilized to help and uh, marcus with the with the game nowadays cricket rather I, um that was two cricketers just referring to it as the game and there's obviously a few more games than just cricket um, do you get um, you know? Do you get players coming to you to talk to you uh, anymore, um, or you know? You, I, I guess it would be very Somerset centralised. But do you get guys coming to you and sharing with you difficulties that they're having? Uh, a little bit, yeah. It goes through spells where somebody will come and you know make contact with me, and you know I've had a few from other sports via people that we know together, um, other players that I might have played with. Um, yeah, you you. It becomes an easier topic for people to talk about if they, if they suffer themselves and they become quite open with it. Then you almost seek each other out because you know that, um, you know you've got a common theme to talk about, and it and it becomes quite a, an interesting topic. Um, I have played with some people, and throughout the whole of their journey and my journey while we were playing in the same team, said absolutely nothing, right up until the point of the, almost like the last week of their career when they were finishing and then they, they mentioned it and I'm like, really, we've batted together all those times and you've never mentioned anything. We've got this relationship. He said, no, he just didn't, he, did, he never felt comfortable talking about it to anyone. Um, eventually he mentioned it to me, but um, yeah, it, it is. And, and I've spoke to a few cricketers who have come and, and talked and just not comfortable with, you know, bringing it out in the public. Some are more high profile than others. And that's okay because that's their own way of, of dealing with it. They were they were more scared about, you know, how the how the coach would react if they knew what they were dealing with, um, and more often than not, the coach knows. Coach sees it or has got com, uh, comes with the doctor, and they you know there's some communication that that's in place, but they're just not comfortable enough or ready to talk to about it, you know, to the various people that they need to. 
And do you, and do you think you can you can see it in other players? Have you you know where you 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 see a few warning signs with with teammates or even guys you're not playing with, but just you know things you hear about as to, to what's going on in their life? Do you think you can spot it? Yeah, I think you can see certain things. There are certain traits within players um, that you pick up, and more often than not, you you see it when they're obviously they're in a bad place when when you can see these sort of things. So they they're quite obvious at times. There's other players which are more of the worrying ones for me who have never suffered or appreciated that or never understood that they suffer, but you can see a lot of things within them that you think it's going to take one little thing that's going to push them over the edge and they're going to suddenly have almost not a nervous breakdown because I don't it's not that's almost old terminology in in what was going on, but something will crack and they'll 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 plummet to a point where they're not understanding what's going on. And that's that's the ones that really worry me because that that becomes more of a clinical problem rather than just a sort of um, a psychological problem playing cricket itself. So, because you you don't want to go to them and highlight something that potentially might not that might not ever sort of arise, but um, you do see things in people which worry you. Yeah, so I've I've actually I've, it's, that's a re- the point you're making is a really interesting one because I, I if from an addiction point of view. You know, sadly, there are people who have addiction issues who who never front up to it, and they live their whole life in addiction, and and it, and it sadly will, will will destroy almost every part of their life in in some way. But they they can kind of function along along the way. I've actually I've never considered that from a mental health point of view, which sounds it sounds a bit silly. But Simon, but is that from a therapist point of view? Can someone kind of operate with? poor mental health, you know, even depression, anxiety throughout their whole life and never really come to terms with maybe self-medicate with alcohol and things like that and, and actually never get to a place where they seek help for it. Mm-hmm. I think that's absolutely the case. I think wow. there, there could be many people that would have all sorts of coping strategies and ways of being able to uh, manage and, and make people believe that they're doing okay. Um, I, I know all of those people will come to see me for therapy, but I do see people later on in life and it looks like they've been managing for 20, 30 years and people would not have known that they, they would have hidden it so well. And that's a testament to their strength. And the question that I will often say to them is imagine how much more you could have done if you hadn't been having to manage and cope in all these different ways. Yeah, amazing. And Marcus, what, what would you... You know, if you were talking to young players nowadays in the age of Instagram and TikTok and everything else going on, all that kind of influx of information, what would be your advice to, to young cricketers who are, who, are potential, who potentially might have these problems or, or would even just be interested in hearing about it? It's very tricky, isn't it? Obviously, we live in a different world now with all this social media stuff. Um, I deal with it with my kids and, you know, there's many issues that arise with that. Um, you've got to find a coping method. Uh, to understand that, you know, it's not always going to be, you know, roses and, and bright lights. You know, I don't think we, uh, I think we know that. And the further you go up the food chain, you you know, that's going to grow even more for people to understand. So, you know, a coping method to understand that and, and learn how to cope with it. Um, I, I'm, ve- I'm a big advocate of obviously within the sporting world of obviously the sports psychologist side of it, because I think they're so important. And, and that's not just to try and p- improve performance um, in in your batting or your bowling or whatever your game is, it's also an outlet then to start process of talking to people. Um, the more comfortable you get with talking with somebody with, in a um, a subject that you're comfortable talking about. We're, we're talking about cricket here. This is not an issue of dealing with mental health problems, but 
it opens an avenue that they can start to build a relationship and feel more comfortable that they can go and talk to those people. Plus, you know, with us as coaches now, we're, we're there to for a shoulder to cry on or, you know, somebody to come and talk to us and say, look, I'm really struggling. You know, we, we can help. We can start the journey. We can start the process of, of getting better. But like I said to you, I'm a big advocate of telling people to talk and be open. Um, but I don't always do it myself. So, you know, but it, I know it makes a big difference. I know it makes a huge difference. Mm. So and from a therapist, a therapist point of view, Simon, is that um, again, this is eye opening for me because these are things I've actually never thought about. But what you're effectively saying, Marcus, is, you know, just getting someone to talk about, you know, something that they're comfortable with, not just their mental health can help the process of eventually talking about their mental health challenges. As a therapist, Simon, is that a technique you would use to just get someone to open up a little bit and to talk about an area of their life that they're comfortable doing. And you know that eventually that might move to them talking about deeper issues. Absolutely. So just looking at someone holistically in their situation and trying to understand what their relationship's like, what kind of things they think about themselves, how are they valuing their success or measuring their success. Um, just having a general relationship with someone can start to lay the foundations of someone being able to have those conversations. As Marcus said, he batted with someone for all that time and it took that long for that person to say right at the end of, of them playing together, actually, yeah, I can relate to a lot of what you're saying. So just having that relationship, having that kind of pastoral care, I suppose, as a coach, as a coach is really important just to help those conversations come up when they're needed. And just Marcus, as we sort of come to an end, do you... Do you... Do you think there's enough help out there at the moment for for cricketers in particular, professional sport? Where, where, where do you see it at, the, the general support around these sorts of challenges? Well, I think we're in a good place as a cricketing fraternity, if I'm honest. Um, I think our, our union, the Professional Cricketers Association, um, probably because of the situations that have already arisen with, you know, fellow players, you know, have put their hands up, you know, we're ahead of the game. You know, we've created platforms for our players to um, gain help, get help, um, and made it easier for for our the members of the, the professional cricketers to, you know, to, to do so. I'm not sure that's the same in all sports. I was, I was invited, luckily, to do a, a sort of... Um, a conference with many other sporting people from across, you know, in the UK from different sports. And I stood up within this group and said, I think we're in a great place. I think mental health challenges are getting better. And I think the, you know, the, the help is out there. I was pretty much the only one, you know, from football, from rugby, from boxing, from athletics, from all these different people to say they're pretty much left to their own devices to go and sort out what they need to do. And, and that shocked me really, really big because I think in, Everything that football has, everything that rugby has, all the Olympic sports, you know, how is this not in place by now? You know, what what a shame to think, you know, our, our sporting icons from across the, the country are not getting that help that we need. And, and it, it just highlighted to me how much we, how far we'd come as a cricketing group to show that we were doing so well. Yeah, I, I think just to add to that, we last episode we had uh, Niall Wilson on, an, an Olympic athlete, and and. You know, he, he talked very much around the, the Olympic cycle, you know, the four year cycle of building up for this huge event, the biggest event of your life, and then kind of falling off the edge of a cliff afterwards. And the reality is that Olympic sports are driven by money, which is driven by medals. You know, you win medals, you get money, the sport continues. So this cycle of, you know, um, and, and people find it uncomfortable when 
somebody like myself says this, but it's like we produce winners, but at what cost? You know, at what cost are we doing this? And, and can they coexist being a winner and, and being healthy and having a healthy life to go on to afterwards? I, I passionately believe you can. You definitely can. Olympians can, can coexist being the best athletes they can in the world and not falling off the edge of a cliff. But I think that the challenge for sport in general is to be able to find a place that that conversation can happen comfortably without anyone feeling threatened or we're softening something. So look, I, I, I'm going to draw it to an end here. Marcus, thank you very much for joining us today and, and giving us your insight into to the mental health challenges in your life and, and all your perspective on it. It's also been good to catch up with an old mate. I think that the, the challenges that, you know, sport and cricket are going to face in, in the coming years, coming months, are not going to disappear. I think the conversation needs to continue. Um, I, I, I do try and say this to, to everybody that comes on, but I think I mean it especially for you because you were the first in my sport. You know, I know there would have been people prior to you who suffered with mental health challenges, but you were the one that really changed everything. And I, like I said earlier, for my personal life, that has been massive. So I really thank you, um, you know, for, for that open honesty that you've, you've given the whole sport. So um, I hope everyone's enjoyed listening to that. Please reach out for help if you think you need professional help. The priory contact details can be found in the podcast overview or visit their website at thepriory.com. Simon, thank you. Marcus, thank you again. Thanks. Thank you, guys. Until next time, guys, thank you for listening and goodbye.